0: morning and turn to Numbers, Numbers 22. For those of you that are visiting, we're going through the uh, book of Numbers, an Old Testament book in Sunday school. We're going through the book of Joel, one of the minor prophets, and Sunday morning we're going through Numbers. Sunday evening we're going through the book of Ephesians, and uh, we like to go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and see what the Lord has for us. Uh, we don't want to uh, uh, tiptoe around the difficult passages. We want to go and see what God has for us, whether it's good, uh, bad, or ugly. You know, and uh, sometimes uh, it's kind of tough to take, but uh, that's what the Bible is for. Uh, it's profitable for instruction, for reproof, uh, for uh, helping us to just. Become the uh, the mature Christians we need to be, or perhaps you're here this morning without Christ, and uh, you need to hear the Word of God and what uh, God's Word has for you. Well, this is a Rodeo uh, Weekend here at uh, in Spooner. I guess it was the 65th Rodeo uh, annual rodeo, and uh, it's a big thing around here. Lots of people. Uh, you can't hardly drive through the. The big city here without uh, uh, so, with so much traffic, you know. It's almost like going through Chicago, you know. Well, not quite, but uh, uh, it was pretty busy. Uh, try to get something at the grocery store. Well, that was a challenge. But I don't know how many of you went to the rodeo, but uh, did, did anybody go? Anybody go to the rodeo? Were there any donkeys? What? No donkeys? Well, oh, that's not a real rodeo, then, is it? Now, oh, they ought to have, to have some donkeys uh, at a rodeo. Uh, uh, well, we're going to talk about a discussion with a donkey today. And so maybe uh, Balaam's donkey wasn't at the rodeo, but uh, uh, he is in our study this morning. And so, as we look at uh, uh, Numbers chapter 22, just a reminder last week we talked about uh, the degeneration of determination. King Balak of Moab hired a fortune teller by the name of Balaam to curse the people of Israel. Uh, it was through Balak's persistence in getting Balaam to answer the summons, his summons that uh, we saw the steps that Satan takes to try to destroy us with temptation. Uh, there were four particular steps that we looked at, uh, and uh, we saw there the impressiveness of the appeal. Uh, it how honorable and even popular people are used uh, to, to try to uh, appeal to people and get them to uh, do that, which is wrong. Uh, we saw the inflation of the appeal, how egos are flattered and inflated, uh, the indemnity of the, the appeal, promotion and possessions are promised, and uh, uh, the incessancy of the appeal, and how evil is persistent in temptation, now, a little later in our message here, we're going to see there are four more steps. Now, this isn't all that the Satan is trying to do here, but this is what we covered last week. So after praying a second time to the Lord, God tells Balaam to go ahead and go with the man, but he could only speak what God told him to speak. And remember, the original instructions were, don't go. But let's pick up the account uh, here in chapter 22 and verse 22 as we look at the dander of God. You say, where's that word dander again, pastor? I used that once before in our study there. Why are you using dander? It starts with a D, okay? And it means anger. Dander is a term we've used before because it seems that someone is always getting their dander up. They're getting angry in the book of Numbers. Uh, actually, several people are angry in this particular section. God is angry with Balaam. Why? Well, he said Balaam could go with the man, and yet God was angry with Balaam for defying his original will and allowing the love of money to control him. He was angry with Balaam's unspoken motives and intentions. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. Uh, Balaam went with the men for the wrong purpose. Now, the angel of the Lord uh, stood in Balaam's path with a sword in his hand, and the angel of the Lord is believed to be a theophany. That's one of those uh, uh, theological uh, terms that uh, sometimes uh, we uh, preachers use. But it speaks of an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, this has happened before. Genesis chapter 16, uh, we see there the angel of the Lord tells Hagar to go back home after she had fled from Sarah. Uh, Genesis 18, 1 and 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham and informs him he's going to have a son through Sarah. It happened in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 there. An angel of the Lord informs Moses of his mission in Egypt. Well, here Balaam is riding uh, his donkey. Now, we're talking about donkeys for a little bit this morning. Uh, they're very important uh, in the Middle East. Uh, the, at that time, they were especially. The animal uh, had more discernment than his master. That's a domestic uh, uh, donkey that was highly prized in the Middle East. It it was an important mode of transportation for common people of the land, as well as for princes and those of royalty. Uh, He he was ideal for carrying supplies if the the load was not too heavy. Uh, The donkey was an animal that was highly adapted uh, for desert travel. Uh, It had an easy gait and could travel at a quick pace. It was fast enough to keep up with the camels. And on rough terrain, it was faster than horses. That's why you can't understand why there wouldn't be some donkeys in the uh, in the rodeo. They're they're faster than horses. Uh, they were sure-footed and able to endure rough ground and sharp rocks. Uh, the donkey could live on thorns and thistles and other rough forms of vegetation. If there was any water in the region, the donkey could sniff it out. Uh, the weakness of this animal, though, was its low tolerance of cold temperatures don't think it had too much problem with that in the Middle East. But it loses its strength and its speed if the temperature drops. Uh, this would be a factor if someone wanted to travel during a cold desert night. Well, it was not a dumb animal, though, as many would perceive it to be. Instead, it was extremely intelligent and alert. Uh, when this animal was well treated... It holds its head up high, steps lively, and can gallop if need, the need arises. Uh, when, if it's treated with cruelty and whipping, it becomes a slothful, spiritless animal. When the donkey is well-groomed, its hair is very shiny. The white donkey was greatly prized because it believed to be swifter, and the wealthy sheiks would own the white donkeys because of the expensive price tag. Well donkeys are usually very dependable and so it was for that reason Balaam is angry with this animal. God is trying to get Balaam's attention and he uses the donkey to do it. Now you notice the squeeze so to speak increases as the warnings are ignored uh, the angel's in the way in verse 22. We see it in verse 22. It says, And God's anger was kindled against, uh, because he went and the angel of the Lord stood in the way for the adversary against him. Now he was riding upon his ass and his two servants were with him. Uh, in his path in the vineyard, uh, uh, of uh, the vineyard was, uh, with a wall on both sides. It tells us there, uh, in verse 24. It says, but the angel of the Lord stood in the path of the vineyards, and the wall being on this side and a wall on that side. It was a narrow place where there's no place to turn. It tells us in verse 26, uh, the angel of the Lord went further and stood in the narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right hand or to the left. And then the donkey falls upon Balaam. Uh, We're told there in verse 27, And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, he fell down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he smote the ass with a staff. So not only does God become angry at Balaam, but Balaam becomes angry with the donkey. So next we come to that discussion with the donkey. Ever had a discussion with a donkey? I don't think... uh, uh, we know too much about that now we we might think we do uh, god opened the mouth of the donkey but how many of you remember francis francis the talking mule yeah there's a few of you oldies around here still remember francis how about mr ed the talking horse yeah well we know remember mr ed yeah uh, i don't think there's any relationship between them those two and this one okay um, just thought I'd throw that in. But uh, this donkey is talking. And he asks, what have I done for you to smite me this these three times? Have I ever done this before? Now, has any other creature in the Bible talked or spoken? Well, yes, certainly we find other creatures there. and uh, It was the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 that spoke to Eve. It's amazing that this donkey speaks and what is even more amazing Balaam responds. He talks back. What would you do if a donkey talked to you? Or what about your dog or your cat? What if they all of us started talking to you? What would you do? I know a lot of people who talk to their dogs and you talk to their cats and their dogs and cats don't really respond with verbal uh, explanation. They might go wagging their tail, or they might stick out their tongue, or they might do all kinds of other things, but they don't usually answer you or talk to you. I'm sure you'd be quite surprised, though, if one of them did. Balaam shows a little surprise. Why? Could it be that he's heard such things before? Uh, We don't know. His rage may have blunted his ability to be surprised, and when you're in a rage, you usually are not thinking very clear. Now, there are some buried insights, some treasures here, I believe, that we need to be aware of. The change in the donkey's behavior indicates a hidden explanation. The same holds true for people when there's a drastic change in their behavior. You know, when someone has a drastic change in their behavior, we need to be patient with them. Uh, we need to ask them if they're okay. Uh, do you make the mistakes that Balaam did? If someone's behavior changes, do you get upset with them right away? Or do you uh, make the mistake that Balaam did? did you, uh, do you ignore God's no and go ahead with your own plans? God had told Balaam not to go. But Balaam insisted on going, and God allowed him to do that, but uh, he ignored God's no, no, and he went ahead with his own plan. Do you miss the cues of the donkey, so to speak? Cues such as your conscience, or the cautions of the scripture, or maybe some friends, or some circumstances in life, which are all saying, don't do this. There's danger ahead. It's the wrong way. I wonder, is an angel blocking your path? The angel of other choices that makes more sense? Or the angel of your apprehension about your decision? Or the angel of complications of circumstances? Is your foot being crushed, if you please? Is God using a physical affliction to prevent further mistakes? How about the angel of your plans? Are they being hindered or failing? I wonder, do you beat the one who's trying to help you? Do you attack your parents, young people? Uh, Do you attack your friends or your teachers? Some of you might even have roast pastor for for lunch today. You ought to thank God for the people in your life. Proverbs 26 and Verse six, or 27 verse 6 says faithful are the wounds of a friend but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Proverbs 27 verse 17 iron sharpeneth iron so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Sometimes we strike out at people who get in our way. We think we know what's best. We want, we've got our plans and someone comes to give us some friendly advice and we say nah I don't want to hear it. We may not hit them physically. But we don't want to pay attention to them. We also do this when we're embarrassed. Uh, Don't allow your pride to hurt other people. Don't let your greed destroy your life or your relationships with others. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 verse 9 says, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition." Balaam didn't want to hear what God had to say to him, even through the angel or his beast of burden, the donkey. So let's look at this divine encounter then in verses 31 through 35. In verse 31... It says, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before me. And the ass saw me and turned from me these three times. Unless she had turned from me, surely now also I had slain thee and saved her alive. And Balaam said unto the angel, of The Lord, I have sinned, for I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. Now therefore, if it displeased thee, I will get thee back again. And the angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I speak unto thee, that thou shalt speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Balaam's eyes are opened. The light comes on in his brain. Balaam says something that everyone needs to say, and that is, I have sinned. The three hardest words to say in the English language are, I was wrong. I was wrong. And if you're here this morning without Christ as your personal Savior, the first thing you need to admit is that you're a sinner. Turn to Romans chapter 3 for a moment. You can hold a place there in, in, in Numbers. We'll be back. I promise. Romans chapter 3. Let me just emphasize how important it is with this kind of parentheses here. If you're not saved, you need an encounter with the truth of God's word this morning. If you are saved, perhaps you need to remember what you were saved from. We need to remember that we are sinners who need to be saved, or we're sinners who have been saved by God's grace in spite of our sin. Notice, first of all, sin is a universal problem. Sin is a universal problem. It touches every race. Look at uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. And what then? Are we better than they? No. In no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. It touches every race. Paul tells us that the sin problem affects both the Jew and the Gentile. Regardless of the color of your skin, you're still a sinner. No one is exempt from the stain of sin. Secondly, it touches every religion. Again, verse 9 there, Paul tells that the Jew and the pagan are both sinners. It matters not how dedicated one might be to their religion. They're still sinners in the sight of God. Notice the words, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. Paul tells his Christian readers here that they're no different than anyone else. All men are sinners. There's no escaping this awful truth. Thirdly, it tarnishes all righteousness. Look at verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Here is God's indictment of the sinner. He looks at them. And he says that no man has the ability to produce righteousness. In fact, the Bible tells us that the best we can produce in the flesh is filthy rags in the sight of God, Isaiah 64 and verse 6. The best we can do will never be good enough. The problem with that idea is that Jesus said that we had to possess perfect righteousness to get into heaven. Well, in and of ourselves, we are that would be absolutely impossible. I can never be good enough to please God because I'm a sinner and everything I touch is ruined by my sin. You know, people can try anything they please but the fact remains there is only one way to cure the sin problem and make it into heaven and that is through faith in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we trust ourselves to get to heaven We'll trust ourselves right into hell. Sin is a horrible problem. Sin is a universal problem. It only has one cure, and that cure is Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Now notice that sin is an ugly problem. The sinful nature will always manifest itself in his life uh, uh, the sinful nature of a man will always manifest, uh, manifest itself in his life. Now these verses tell all problem about the problems that man has because he's a sinner. These statements prove that while sin is a universal problem, everybody must deal with it. It's, almost, it's also an ugly problem. Notice what the sin has done to the sinner. Notice here how Paul quotes Old Testament scripture, and uh, particularly the Psalms. First of all, sin has tarnished our spirit. Sin has tarnished our spirit. Again in verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. This has already been touched upon, but the fact is that we are sinners, uh, and that's why we are barred from entering heaven. And simply stated, we are wicked to the core of our being and there's no good at all in none of us don't believe it when someone says well everybody has a little spark of divinity in them no that's hogwash i use those greek terms see now that may bother some people but it's true that's what the bible says you can search the world from town to town. You can interview every one of some six to seven billion people in the world and not find one righteous man. You might find some who seem better than others. But when they're all judged by the standard, and the standard is the perfect righteousness of God Himself, then the truth is plain to see. They are guilty before the Lord. Men may look good outwardly, but inwardly they are rotten and wicked. In Psalm 14, it says in verse 1 The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looketh down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there would There were any that did understand and seek God, and they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. You see what Paul was doing, he's quoting the psalmist. And so sin has tarnished our spirit. Sin has tarnished our senses. Look at verse 11. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. This verse teaches the terrible truth that sin has dulled our minds to the truth of God. We cannot understand him, and there is not a single person in this world who will seek God if he was left to himself. Nobody just all at once decides to go after God. When a person begins to hunger for the Lord, it's the work of God in his spirit. Man is a rebel, and he's dead until the Lord quickens his heart and creates that hunger in man for God. And sin has left us with spiritual brain damage, if you please. He's t- sin has tarnished our senses. And then sin has tarnished our souls. Verse 12. They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. This verse makes the accusation that all sinners are wayward and worthless. It's the same idea mentioned over in Isaiah 53 and verse 6, or that is pictured in the parable of the lost sheep in Luke chapter 15. The picture is one uh, uh, of one who is unusable for the Lord. Not only has sin dulled our minds and damaged our spirits, but it's dirtied our vessels. God cannot use a dirty vessel. And then sin has tarnished our speech. Look at verse 13 and 14 here in Romans 3. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Paul moves to tell us that sin has ruined our speech. You know, again, he's merely echoing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 and 35 Jesus said, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. And then in chapters 15 and, and verse 18, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the for, forth from the heart, and they defile the man. It's a fact. But your words will reveal the condition of your heart. You notice here that the writer, what he says about the sinner's speech, it'll, it's like the smell of a rotting corpse. It's filled with lies and deception. It's like a deadly poison, it's a weapon of devastating power. Sin has tarnished our spirits, our senses, our souls, our speech. And then sin has tarnished our steps. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. Paul tells us the influence of sin in our lives has caused us to be extraordinarily cruel and wicked in the way we walk. Notice what he says about the sinful heart. We're quick to shed blood. People are growing more and more brutal. People do not really want peace. And then sin has tarnished our sight. Verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36 in verse 1 says, The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. The symbol there is eyes. It's talking about spiritual darkness. Notice the meaning. There's no reverential fear of God. This is why he is able to uh, be all these other things. This is why he's able to live the kind of life that he does. And to put it simply, men just do not fear the Lord. God has already told mankind what will happen as a result of his sins. Man has chosen not to believe the word of God. In fact, most people live as though God does not even exist. Somebody has called this practical atheism. It's the kind of person that knows there is a God. He knows there is a hell. He knows that he needs to live for the Lord, and yet he chooses to live his life his way and live as if there is no God. And that frees him from any restrictions on his behavior and allows him to do what he pleases. And God has a name for people like that. Fool. Psalm 14, verse 1. Sin has tarnished our spirits, our senses, our souls, our speech, our steps, our sight. This is a very ugly picture of the problem of sin. Sin is ugly. Now Satan wants to make it look beautiful. But when it comes right down to it, it's not a pretty picture at all. So sin is a universal problem. Sin is an ugly problem. And then thirdly, sin is an undeniable problem. And this is the final thing that Paul has to say about sin, because there are still those who say, well, we have the law and I'll, I, we keep the law. We just hold on to it. But man's sin is declared by the law. Verse 19. He says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, for that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Because the law of God condemns all things that man is guilty of, man stands condemned by the law. The law has the ability to show us how wicked we really are. Someone has said it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. No one can look to the word of God and miss that truth of what Paul is saying. And just remember what Christ's words were on the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. It is the word of God that shows us how wretched we really are. Man's sin is damned by the law. Verse 20. Therefore. Therefore. By the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. God gave the law to man as a tool. He's given to show that man is a sinner and to drive man to Jesus. And if man, if the law had one purpose, it was to show us that we are guilty. The law is like a mirror, according to James chapter 1, verse 23. For if any be a hearer of the Lord and not a... a, a Hear of the word, and not a doer. He is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway uh, forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. You know, it can show you how dirty your face is. A mirror can show you how dirty your face is. But a mirror cannot clean you up. You can't go to the mirror in the bathroom in the morning and say, Boy, you got a dirty face. Do something about it, mirror. Mirror won't do anything. You don't take the mirror and rub it on your face and get clean. The mirror is there to point you to the water. And so it is with the law. The law cannot clean us up, but it can create a hunger for, uh, in us for the one who can, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking into the law cannot save you. Living out the law cannot save you. The only thing that can save a sinner is coming to Jesus Christ by faith. We have too many who are trying to do their good way, uh, uh, works uh, to, uh, to the, uh, as their way to God, but that simply won't work. The Bible is very clear. You must be born again. So what am I saying? You must admit that you're a sinner, and if you're not saved, you must be born again. If you are saved, then when sin comes into your life, you must admit that you're a sinner and confess it and forsake it. But if we go back to Numbers, notice Balaam's pride in Numbers chapter 22, verse 34. In verse 34, he says, And Balaam said unto the Lord, or the angel of the Lord, and I have sinned, for I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeased thee, I will get thee back, me back again. He says, if it displeased thee. Of course it displeased the Lord. There's no if about it. In judgment God lets Balaam go and he leads it leads to his ruin. God judges us sometimes by letting us have our own way in disobedience and eventually eventually we're going to loathe our way. That brings us to the disquieted king. We find this in verses 36 through 41. When Balak heard that Balaam was gone or was come, he went out to meet him into the city of Moab, which is in the border of Arnon, which is at the utmost coast. And Balak said unto Balaam, Did I not earnestly send unto thee to call thee? Wherefore camest thou not unto me? Am I not able indeed to promote thee to honor? And Balaam said to Balak, Lo, I am come unto thee. Have I now any power at all to say anything, the word that God putteth in my mouth? That shall I speak. And Balaam went out, or went with Balak, and they came to uh, kirjath Zoth. And Balak uh, offered oxen and sheep, and sent to Balaam and to his princes that were with him. And it came to pass in the morrow that Balak took Balaam and, and brought him up into the high places of Baal, that thence he might see the utmost part of the people. Balak has now nothing to complain about. But Balaam did not come sooner. Balaam bids Balak to uh, not depend too much upon him. He seems to speak with aggravation here, but it's really as desirous to uh, to please Balak just as he had pretended to or, uh, be uh, in order to please God. Now, the Lord willing, we'll continue our study with Balaam next time, but. In this portion of Scripture, but we find here another step of temptation to break us down. Now we've already seen the impressiveness, the inflation, the indemnity, the incessancy of the appeal. But as I close this morning, I want us to give. I want to give you four additional steps of appeal uh, of temptation in our lives. Step five is the incrimination of the appeal. Balak is rebuked when he does not perform as expected. And the finger is pointing at him. When compliments don't work, Satan will use criticism to get us to give in to him. You have to admit, we hate rejection, don't we? We hate condemnation. We hate to be criticized. Some folks decide to give in to the pressure. But the incrimination here of the appeal is the criticism that Satan will use. And the last three steps of temptation do come in other chapters of Numbers. But I want to briefly look at them just to bring us to some continuity here. Notice number six is the inflection of the appeal. Go over to Numbers chapter 23 for a moment in verse 25. It says, And Balak said unto Balaam, Neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. Here the appeal is modified. Compromise is suggested. In other words, do nothing. The king tells Balaam, Don't bless them at all. And if you will not criticize godliness, at least don't praise it. Do nothing. You know, if we cease to praise goodness, we usually end up criticizing it. Satan wants us to do nothing if we will not do what's wrong. He wants us to be in neutral. (coughs) He wants us to be lukewarm. God's word addresses this condition in a number of places. Luke chapter 16 and verse 13, it says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, uh, uh, the Lord said, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, Edmund Burke said this, All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. We can just sit around and just do nothing. Well, evil's going to win the day then. It was Haddon Robinson that said, You will invest your life in something or you will throw it away on nothing. And then a E. Stanley Jones is known to say, If you don't make up your mind, your unmade mind will unmake you. Something to think about, isn't it? Then there's number seven, the ignoring of the appeal. You go on to Numbers chapter 24, verse 10. And verse 10 says, And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he smote his hands together. And Balak said unto Balaam, Call thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast altogether blessed them with these three times. Rejection is a tool of temptation. Many will yield to temptation when the loss of friends is threatened. And then number eight the intermixing of the appeal in verse 11 of chapter 24. Therefore, now flee thou to thy place, I thought to promote thee unto great honor, but lo, the Lord hath kept thee back from honor. Sin and temptation mix evil with religion to make evil acceptable. A cult will mix lies with a little bit of the Bible truth to deceive people. You know, the Nazis had a slogan, God with us, inscribed on their belt buckles in order to be acceptable to the people. Satan will tempt you with an unsaved person who is religious, but he's lost in his sin. He'll do this in marriage. He'll do this in dating. He'll do it in business relationships. We're to use discernments in our decisions we make and the offers that are made to us. 1 John 4, 1 and 2 says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, is of God. Proverbs 14, 15 says, The simple believeth every word, but the prudent man looketh well to his goings. Ephesians 5, 10 says, Proving, putting to the test what is acceptable unto God. And so when temptation comes, we need to realize it's not always a simple thing just to say no. Because Satan will not give up that easily. We're in a battle. We're in a battle against sin and evil influence in this world, and it's on a daily basis. And so I believe the great lesson of this account, which God has seen fit to give us in his word, is that Balaam was willing to compromise conviction for advancement. Balaam is an example, not a good example, but he's an example of what to avoid in our lives. You cannot be saved by following your own way or some false religion's perceived way to heaven. You must follow God's word. You must accept the truth of God's word. You must admit that you're a sinner, and the only way you can be saved is by accepting Jesus Christ and what he did for you on Calvary's cross. And I trust you'll respond by the work, with the working of the Holy Spirit in your life, even this morning. Is it going to be your way or God's way? That's your decision to make today, whether you need to trust Christ as your Savior or whether you're going to live for the Lord day by day. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Know who and what you're fighting. All these temptations are used to get us off track. They're useless for the work of the Lord. They're useless for bringing glory to his name. And I trust that we'll see what God wants us to see even through this Old Testament book of Numbers. Let's bow in prayer.